0: Welcome to a brand new series. It's Series 11 of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. My guest on this first episode is... Bloody poor Merton, that's who it is. That's not a bad start, is it? There's some fantastic guests coming up in the rest of the series. Go to richherring.com slash gigs, and you can see everyone who's coming up. Adam Buxton, Julian Clary, all sorts of... Limmy's back, all sorts of great people coming up. If you want to help us fund the this series of Rahula's uh, the Papa, then you can go to gofasterstripe.com and buy my new emergency questions book. It's out at last. There's over 500 emergency questions in here. Like... Um, And it's, why did Jesus say, why hast thou forsaken me on the cross? Had he forgotten about the plan that he and his dad had come up with to save mankind? That's the kind of question you could ask to a stranger on a bus and become friends or not, or become enemies or on a date and have people think you're weird. Uh, What about, has anyone you've had sex with had sex with someone famous? My answer to that question is yes. Everyone I've had sex with has had sex with someone famous. It is me. Bang! Take that. So if you want to help us out and also get a brilliant book that is a lot of fun, I have to tell you, people are enjoying this a lot, go to gofaststrike.com uh, and you can buy the Emergence Questions book. You can also buy some, emer- some new uh, postcards and badges designed by the fantastic Leon Edler. So check those out. Thanks for listening. Here's the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester the Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who this week irked to postman. Is Richard Herring? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! You should have killed me last year. Welcome, welcome to uh, welcome to another series. It's still going on. I don't know. It's got recommissioned. I don't know how. Uh, To a new, a new series, series eleven of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I was hanging around with Platinum uh, from uh, the. Hard need to tell you from the blazing squad. And um, <laughs> we met down by the crossroads. That's where we met up. Uh, he calls it uh, Rehlasmus, I don't know if that's going to catch up. <laughs> and uh, yes, very. I did this week, I irked a postman. I, weirdly enough, if you listened, uh, there was an audio special from uh, the Wales Comedy Festival, and one of my new emergency questions was, have you ever irked a postman? And I hadn't irked a postman when I came up with that question, but I, since doing that podcast, I irked a postman. And he was very irked, I have to say. And it was your fault, because i be spent all week... Uh, signing these new emergency question books that are available from gofasterstrike.com, 500 questions plus uh, of that you can entertain your friends and family with. Uh, and I'd agreed to sign and, and add extra questions to about 200 of these. And then I had all these envelopes and I kind of just posted them all in the post boxes near my house and, uh, and filled all the post boxes up. <laughs> And uh, I kind of thought, I did it at night, and I thought, oh, they'll come in the early, early in the morning and empty the post boxes, because I you know, remember the 1970s when there used to be more than one postal collection. And then about five o'clock in the evening, I went out with, I had 10 bags of these, uh, bag for life bags of these things that I had to deliver. They've closed down all the post offices in Shepherd's Bush. So I, I wasn't gonna take, I took two of them to the post office, but it would have been five miles to take all of them to the post office and back. Uh, and so I went and I saw him at the van. I ran up and said, oh mate, can you put these in the van? He went, no, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're very selfish, you're a very selfish man. Why have you done this? And I, we had a long, I, I might turn it into a routine uh, for my new show, over oh Frig, I'm because 10 years ago I had a fight with a university lecturer on the streets of Liverpool as I was entering my midlife crisis. It was quite embarrassing. It was, it, it, it was, it's a long story, but he, it, it was basically his fault and he'd been unpleasant and he sort of attacked me and so I fought him back uh, and, and went to fight him before I remembered that I didn't really know how to fight. Uh, and we just sort of windmilled around about a fight. I, and I kicked him in the balls quite a lot and uh, I did punch him in the head once, it was brilliant. And really, if you've never punched anyone, do punch someone, it's fucking great. Uh, and I, got, I had all my shirt ripped off me and he sort of ran away and the police came and then they, they sort of were laughing at me. And, uh, and I got in the cab to, to leave, uh, to go back to my hotel and the cab driver in Liverpool genuinely said, that was the funniest fight I've ever seen. So uh, it's quite different, 10 years on, nearly 50. I'm a King Postman, so if you are at home, do please uh, d- d- check out this book. We'll, we'll do some questions from it, I'm sure, during the show, so you'll uh, get to see us. We've, we've got a new question book. The, uh, the Lannister book is full, uh, and this is a Tiny Rick book, which in Wales, no one knew what that was, and I'm disappointed in London, no one knows. It's Tiny Rick. Tiny Rick. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. Rick and Morty, you've got to like that. So let's crack on, because we've got quite a good first guest, and so I'll stop blathering on. Uh, my first guest of the new series, he's probably best known uh, as a panellist on the panel show Scruples <laughs> from 1988. I don't think, I don't know why... We'll find out today why he's never done any panel show since then. I <laughs> don't know what happened <laughs> to put him off. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome my guest tonight, Paul Merton, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> There he is! Come here, sit down. It's Paul Merton. Sit here, pull up, a, hold a microphone like in the old days. Paul
1: Merton, it's Paul Merton! It's Paul, bloody Thank you Merton. very much.
0: So, um, we'll get out of the way, because I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but what do you remember
1: about uh,
0: the performing in Scruples? I met John McVicar Did
1: you? Who was uh, again John McVicar in the sixties was uh, on the front cover of the tabloid newspapers as the most dangerous man in Britain. He was a he was a bank robber and he yeah. did use uh, he, he, you know shotguns. He didn't fire them, but he sort of had them in his hand when he walked into the bank and uh, threatened to use them. So he was sort of seen as a violent man. Uh, he then left prison and then sort of, I think he studied sociology or something, or, or got a degree. And then, so I, I knew this, I, I just, you know, he was a guy that was doing this programme, so I, I met him. Um, and I realised, sort of it's a class thing, really, but I had, in a strange way, because he was from sort of Clapham, and I was sort of near sort of that sort of area. I um, had more in common with him than I did with, say, like Stephen Fry.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: you know, even though he was a bank robber, uh, John McVicar, not Stephen Fry. Yeah. Um, he did um, that credit card thing, though, not he, Stephen yes, Fry? Yes, he did. So he was, but it was, was a was... bit of a wrong and as well. But it's the sort of... Uh, it's the one of the working-class ways out, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was interesting. And uh, I met Nicholas Parsons, and from that I sort of... Uh, inveigled my way into being invited onto just a minute so yeah. it all sort of worked out you know yeah that's nice good you, 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 go to, you do these things for a reason if, you, if it works out it's great
0: <laughs> anyone remember Scruples the TV show Scruples no yeah it's got a lot of, <laughs> some big fans some big fans of Scruples and I didn't remember that one I've been reading your autobiography yes. uh, all weekend which is quite unusually I just read the first bit yes. when I've got a guest and then and then blag it yeah blag it from there but yours was pretty good so I read the whole thing uh, it's uh, called Only When I Laugh yes. and it's, uh, it's, it's very well worth it it's very, uh, it's funny, but it's, mm. it's also rather emotional and uh, there's some, some beautiful bits in it as well. But uh, so uh, uh, I'm quite interested in those early days of stand-up, which I will always go back to. But you were you were there as a punter, really, right at the beginning of alternative comedy.
1: Yes, it was sort of the, hist- the history of comedy as we see it today is very much uh, affected by the opening of the Comedy Store in 1979. It, it's still running up and down, you know, in, opposite the Prince of Wales Theatre it is now. But when it opened in 1979, essentially it was a democracy. It was a gong show, which meant that anybody could get up on stage, anybody here could go along to the comedy store give your name to the compere and go up on stage. And if, the, you know, if, you, if you were funny, the audience laughed. If you weren't funny or nervous, there was a gong and off you went and that was it. But for those people who could sort of get through that sort of baptism gong by fire, as it were... It, a chance to be on stage because you can be, you can want to be a comedian, you can want to be in comedy, but until you get stage time, until you're really in front of an audience, it's all theory. Yeah. So that's that that because when I wanted to be a comedian from a very early age, when I was about four or five, I, I saw clowns at Olympia, uh, Bertram Mill Circus, I think it was just after the war. Um, uh, the circuses were huge, huge live entertainment, and it still went into the early sixties. So when I saw it, it was about. 3,000 people in this huge, massive tent at Earl's Court, Olympia. Uh, and, or just, I suppose it was inside the building there rather than a tent. It was obviously the exhibition hall. And I'd never been anywhere where 3,000 people gathered. I used to go to a church on Sunday. It was my parents' idea, and I, I had to go along with them. <laughs> and that was always just boring and Latin and smelt of incense. And here was sort of like adults who are. Previously, I thought, were people who said, no, don't do that, Come down. That's, that's, no, leave that alone. Suddenly they had big boots, they had colourful hair that went up at the side, they, drew, they drove cars where the doors fell off, they threw sausages at each other, they <laughs> ran towards the audience with a bucket of water that turned out to be confetti at the last minute. And just hearing the sound of thousands of people laughing was, was, it was a pivotal moment in my life, right. absolutely. And I wanted to be part of that... Machine that created that laughter. Yeah, yeah. I would have been very happy to have been the guy that walked on and picked up the wheels of the car and then ran off with them again, <laughs> just to clear the ring. Yeah. That would have been a fantastic job, you know. Um, so I was completely hooked by that one moment. Really, it really yeah. was something.
0: And then, so you, you left school. I mean, it's it's interesting. But the book goes goes through all this. But you're at school and. Obviously there's no, I mean I, I was the same, I mean it, it, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> because I was very mm. obsessed with comedy. You're actually almost exactly ten years older than me. Yes. You're, you're about to turn uh, 60.
1: Yes I am, in yes. Three
0: days before I turn 50. We'll yes. never be on the same decade as each other, no, we'll never it's... be able to
1: compare. No. Life's a real fucker, isn't <laughs> it? It is not it I hope that hasn't brought too many people down. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to get this emotional this early.
0: <laughs> Well, maybe talk about that uh, later. But it's but so you know, sc- at school, you know, going to comprehensive schools, uh, yes. it, there was never there was no real path. I mean, I had the same thing as you. I think mm. you go to the careers office and they're giving you pam- I think they wanted me to work in a bank and they wanted yes. you to sh- stack shelves.
1: Well, there was no sort of like before the comedy store in '79. You had your options to become a comedian were to uh, perhaps get into Cambridge, Cambridge Footlights, because uh, people had done that in the past. I was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett. Jonathan Miller. Uh, holiday camps. I mean, Dave Allen started off doing holiday camps yeah. as a red coach back in the early 60s because uh, that was one of the options. Fringe theatre wasn't Really, something that you know you couldn't. Northern men's clubs, working men's clubs in the north, that would have been wouldn't have been any good. So it really was sort of uh, not for me. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> as a as a 19 year old boy, a very shy boy from Morden, into the northern line. Imagine me on stage and imagine, Get the fuck off that stage if you're not going to make us laugh. Come on, the stripper's on in five minutes. She gets paid by the hour. Now come on, move on. You know, I would have died within instant, you know, it wouldn't have, I, you know, that would have been it. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, I can't remember what the question was now, but uh, <laughs> we sort of got there in the end. But yeah, yeah, so, yeah, was, there, was there was people... There was no ex- avenue through, was there? Yeah, so there were no yeah. other avenues through. Uh, there's also a poverty of ambition at school. I remember sort of a kid, at, one day the, the maths teacher said to the class, he said, um, OK, this was in the sixth form, I'm going to go around and ask you what are you going to do when you leave school. And he turned to this one boy in the front row, who was sitting next to his friend, and he said this boy, said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to work for Sunlight Laundry. And the teacher says, well, well, why are you going to work for them? He says, well, they're just down the end of my road. And, I can... <laughs> and the teacher said, that is the most pathetic answer I've heard in 35 years of teaching. You're going to get a job. You're going to base your career at the end of something at the end of your road. That's awful. He turned to the kid next to him and said, what about you? He says, I'm going to work with him. <laughs> you know, it was true. But So you were quite, you were quite shy... Yes, teenager, but that's, that, is, that, is, at, uh, that does know. seem to be a sort of uh, a contradiction. But shy people, initially who are shy, are quite good. Well, are drawn towards performance because although there's a large number of people as there are here, we, I'm speaking as you know I'm on the stage. I've got a microphone. I'm not speaking one to one in a room somewhere. So it's easier to be, uh, I suppose, exhibitionist. Is, is to be fair, in front yeah. of a, a crowd, an audience, rather than individuals.
0: Sure. But you were listening. like you were listening to comedy records and. Mm. And and when having lots of you had uh, films you project onto your wall
1: and yes so you, you were trying kind of to absorb very int- a comedy whichever medium it was P G yeah. books or whatever you sure, know sure sure
0: and I I was interested this is just on a sidebar for me that you made your own
1: uh, snooker table yes uh,
0: <laughs> did you play did you play <laughs> With ping-pong balls. Yeah, they haven't got a lot of weight to them, so you've, you've got to hit them quite hard yeah. to
1: make the move. It was a sort of Sabutio table football pitch, yeah. you know, sort of thing. So you green bays and you put books down and sort of with gaps between them for the pockets. And at yeah. the end of a golf club, you not, you know, it yeah. was... Uh, did you play against
0: any other people or did you just play against yourself?
1: <laughs> it was always interesting to play a really difficult snooker, which you then had to try and get out of. Yeah. You know, so that was quite fun. I still do it as an
0: adult. Uh, well, that's one of my other podcasts. That went, I'll get you on that one sometime. I'll be confused,
1: Yeah,
0: I play myself a snooker in another podcast. Don't worry. On a, uh, on a
1: full-size table?
0: Uh, no, no. Six, well, six by three is a regulation, uh, self-playing snooker size. Six by three. That's the regulation. <laughs> I use proper Football. balls that might out have ping-pong balls. Oh, well, yeah. But six by
1: three, you <laughs> know. <isn't it? laughs> but you saw That's you, like they sell that under my first junior snooker table <laughs> label
0: <laughs> the one that I bought I, I did a couple of uh, uh, frames on tour this last tour yes. in the interval and I started to buy a snooker table in and it was only when I got it onto the stage I realised it was sort of at the height for a five yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I was playing for about five minutes before I realised I am quite small so you know it was it, it suited me Uh, But uh, anyway, so you managed to you managed to you get you gave up your job in the civil service to 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 have a cracker. This is
1: like this is your life, isn't isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) I've got a little. Do you recognise this
0: voice?
1: (laughs) I had to fuck off the Canada to get rid of him. (laughs) It's Uncle Ernie.
0: But you saw, you saw all these early days at
1: the, at the comic, com, 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 comedy store. Yes. So you yes. saw Alexi
0: Sale. As the, you mentioned uh, I the saw
1: Alexi Sale, so yeah, the comic strip, uh, which was shortly after the comedy store because Don at the comedy store wasn't paying anybody. And so they they formed the comic strip. That's how it first started. And They played the was Raymond's review bar. Yeah. And Alexi was, he was this extraordinary. It was, uh, I suppose, half the size of where we are now. Maybe it's like an 80 seat or something. And uh, a tiny stage, but he was this sort of. This would be 1981, 82, 81, I think. And uh, he had this very tight suit and this this pork pie hat, Liverpudlian, really sort of quite sort of not fat but muscular, stocky, I think is the right word. And um, at this point, this was still when we had, you know, with the exception of someone like Biddy Connolly, who who, you know there was you know Des O'Connor, and it was light entertainment kind of sort of uh, stand up is what you had. And so there was Lexi doing these jokes with the most improbable punchlines. Uh, I live in Stock Newington, uh, I work for a magazine. Do you, do you own a magazine, on in Stock Newington? It's written on the front page, fuck all. You know. <laughs> Another one was, uh, yeah, I thought to myself, I might dress as a clown, you know, great, great big boots, paint me face when I have a red nose, and I thought to myself, is it fuck all for Mussolini? <laughs> Heard a gag before when the punchline was Mussolini? You know, extraordinary. It's great being Jewish, you know, because you can just make up names, you know, for holidays. And they don't know at work, you know. You can say, I can't come into work today. I've got to, it's a hackaday. I've got to sit in the back garden with a pork pie on my head. And it was the anger with which he uttered pork pie, you know, like pork pie, you know, it was just, it was astonishing. Yeah. And uh, one routine which doesn't sound particularly witty, but got to the point where you were just really just begging him to stop because it was just you were laughing so much and it was I think he called it stream of tastelessness and basically, it's just like every single swear word, nothing else. That, say it over and over again, repetitive, repetitive, and again, faster and faster. So it would just start off with something like, fuck, shit, wank, gone, bolts, bollocks. And, and just and get faster and faster, over the course of a minute, as his arms started pumping. It was the funniest thing you'd ever seen in your life. Because it was utterly pointless, relentless, scary. <laughs> Completely no material at all, but just really just went for it, and it was uh, it was an astonishing moment. It, yeah. it was uh, that, and that was something that Alexei had never thought of being a comedian. The comedy store was opened up, as I said in '79. Advertised. Do you think? you can be a comedian on the underground and stuff like that. And Alexi was one of the people that, that turned up, you and know. There was sort of an astonishing array. I mean, we were talking about a little bit about back, this backstage, because I started doing I was On the
0: Circuit in about 1990, and a lot there was still a little vestige of this left, but there was a lot of speciality acts and cra- I mean, basically crazy, crazy people or people doing just, you know, there was, a, there was a guy called the Ice Man who was still going when I was going. He yes. just melted
1: a block of ice by yes. lying on it for yes. 20 minutes. <laughs> That, that was the act, It would say 40 minutes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes if the air conditioning was particularly fierce it might take over an hour, <laughs> but he would use a mini blowtorch and thing, that was, people would book him, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. you know, it was, uh... but you, you mentioned someone, that had,
0: you had mentioned uh, was the, uh, Hubert and uh, Hilary Haddock, I Hubert and learned... Hilary Haddock, yes, that had was uh, Fish and, head and
1: head Fire head. Fantasy, right, um, they would... I mean, this was... Because most of these acts... When, when the uh, original people like Alexi Sell, Rick Mell, Aid Edmondson, Nigel Planer, you know, all the Young Ones guys stopped playing the Comedy Store, there was a gap. There was a venue that was open for, you know, one night a week, but no acts. So that's where the Covent Garden acts like to come in. So they were... None of them are really stand-ups. They were, by the nature of being sort of you know, open-air acts, they're visual, lots of whistling goes on <laughs> Had to grab attention and stuff, and just doing crazy things like setting your hat on fire and all this kind of thing. And one of the things that Hubert and Hilary Haddock did, uh, in the fish-and-fire fantasy, they came out to their theme music was... I mean, this was another difference, because comedians don't really... Uh, these days particularly they bother with theme music, entrance music no. particularly I suppose it's called, cool. we don't really bother with it do we? But they had this sort of like March of the Mods by Joe Loss which was... That sort of beat to it. And they come on holding sprats in their hands. <laughs> dressed in sort of like, I suppose sort of semi sort of like Knights of Arabia costumes. You know, <laughs> silk sort of balloony trousers and, yeah. and blouses and stuff. And um, the fish and fire fantasy was basically them sort of, you know, eating fish off each other's stomachs and things like this. And just before they came on one night at the comedy store, a man who was sitting, this is why you should always be careful when you heckle somebody, to have a quick look round. (laughs) This guy shouted out to the compet, give me some variety. Now, just seconds after he said that, he found himself being whacked across the face with a (laughs) sprat. Being welded by a man who looked like he'd come out of sort of 1001 Arabian Nights, You yeah. said, well, he wanted some fucking variety, how about that? And they went on and did, uh, you know, I, I was at the vegetarian restaurant in Highgate where they were banned because they were doing fish.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, it was sort of, you know, it, it was, you know, it was, yeah. it was a sort of, it was a visual stuff. And did you, they throw them into the audience? Yeah, oh, you, you, you always- do a quite annoying thing. Yeah, you always put them on last. Yeah. But then, you know- Then the should... audience can go home not sitting there amongst sprats. <laughs> You know, like doing a gig on a trawler or something. It <laughs> <laughs> comes the net again, we. Uh, then you you came up with the you, know, you you went up and did the gong show and. Uh, no, did I well. didn't know. I, I sort of probably... my confidence was not so strong that I I waited till the gong show stopped because I oh, didn't okay. want to. I, I I desperately wanted to be on stage. Yeah. What I didn't need to be was on stage. Oh, yeah. Uh, not having confidence and somebody shouting something out and going, oh, fuck, Let's made it even harder. So it was only when the policy was eventually dropped, because there were, there were better people coming. It was one night when Alexi got gonged, you know. He right. said, you can't gong me, I'm the fucking compare." <laughs> you know. And so it could sometimes get out of hand if you give the audience... If, and also if they are a bit pissed, if you yeah, give them yeah. too much control, then suddenly people that are good are getting gonged off, you know. So it became a sort of, in the end... I mean, they still do it as a sort of once a month yeah, yeah. Monday thing. yeah. You know, but that's that's better than doing it all the time. Yeah, do you remember your, Do you remember the act, the
0: LSD policeman? Just, just yes, there was um,
1: a, a moment. I suppose I should. I can probably call it a moment of inspiration. I was I was waiting for a bus. Uh, that wasn't the moment of inspiration because <laughs> I've, I've seen other people do it over the years. <laughs> and it was raining a bit like tonight and i and i suddenly remembered this thing pop I, I just to, just to amuse myself i was standing at this bus stop in the rain waiting for the 118 bus and i started talking like a kind of sort of uh, comedy stock policeman oh yeah, what are you doing then, standing in standing the shop window it's all ready now what's going on here and I just, just to myself and then out of nowhere i suddenly remembered a documentary that i'd seen about Five years before, I think it happened in, a, in Wales, there was a, a, a police operation called Operation Julie where essentially they busted this LSD-making factory somewhere in 1977, I think it was Wales, and these, these coppers, not knowing what was going on, went in and busted this, this hallucinogenic LSD factory and inhaled the dust, ingested the dust and then after the successful arrest a couple of them went to the pub and then this was in the documentary the bit i remember so these two men are in the pub these two policemen and one bloke is looking straight into the camera and he says uh, i was having a pint of beer with uh, detective inspector norris well i noticed that my pint of beer was getting bigger <laughs> <laughs> And I I immediately saw the comic contrast between hallucinations where anything can happen and the down-to-earth copper who's bemused by it. And this was shortly after the... um Brixton Riots in 1981, it was 81, yeah. And so this was the first thing I did. I'll try and remember it as much as, as I can. Um, and so essentially, I, I came on, I had a pair of pyjamas on, a pair of striped pyjamas. I had one of those policemen's helmets that you buy in tourist shops, you know, little plastic policeman's helmet. Just to sort of, again, to be sort of kind of... I wasn't sure whether I'd be funny, but I thought what I was saying would be funny, and I thought if I looked visually funny or interesting, that it, well, it all helps, you know, yeah. your first time on stage. So um, it went very well, uh, I came on and I said, um, uh, on Wednesday, I was a policeman giving evidence in court, so it also meant that I could have the notebook there, in case I forgot the words, so I, I tried to remember, think of everything to, to, you know, to conquer nerves if they happened. So here it was something like this. On Wednesday, 14th of October last, while Pat Rowling along Streatham High Road, I observed a motor vehicle illegally parked outside the all-night Clement Attlee massage parlour. <laughs> I questioned the occupants, who said, urinate off, you effing love child. <laughs> The driver then allopagised and offered me a yellow, candy-covered chocolate confectionery, known to the uniformed branch as a Smartie. <laughs> I accepted the Smartie and swallowed it, a Smartie I now know contained a hallucinogenic drug. <laughs> 35 minutes later, while sitting aboard an intergalactic spaceship bound for the planet <laughs> of New <Lucy, laughs> I observed Constable Parrish approaching me, disguised as a fortnight's holiday in Benidorm. (laughs) Hello, Constable Parrish, I said out of the back of my neck. (laughs) And what news of my Lord Buckingham? To which Constable Parrish replied, you stupid git, get down off that bus shelter, (laughs) you stupid git. I then et Constable Parrish. (laughs) I was enticed down from the bus shelter by the very lovely Miss Marilyn Monroe, a former screen starlet. (laughs) We kissed informally until Marilyn, sweet tender Marilyn, revealed herself as Mr Brinsley Okobo, scrap metal dealer from Peckham. (laughs) A panda patrol car flew past and three large uniformed pandas got out. (laughs) I was charged by Chief Constable Warren of gross indecency, impersonating a Spaniard, <laughs> acting the goat, and eating a police constable while in the course of his duty. <laughs> I burst into hysterical laughter, which lasted five months." And that was basically it. That
0: was it. <laughs> That's All right.
1: <laughs> it's very... I mean, it's a very intricate... And it's a very well written routine as well. I it's took six weeks to write it once yeah. I had the initial idea. <laughs> Yeah. sitting in the sit you know over and over again because again it was the idea it was about three and a half minutes long I think yeah. and the idea was that every line is either a joke line or leading to a joke line so even if I'm not funny if what I'm saying is funny then and the thing was it was uh, you know because it is a, it's a difficult job to do uh, and it's very easy to be put off you know when you're not doing very well but that first gig at the comedy store which was just that three and a half minutes at the end going on at half past one I mean it went it's this it stormed it you know it went really well and, and you know, they wanted me back on again. I, I, I went back on and did it again. I mean, there was nothing. I did had no other material, that was,
0: <laughs>
1: and I walked all the way home from Soho, uh, from Wardour Street, all the way to Streatham. I got back about seven in the morning. It was around about April time, and it was just. I mean, Ed got me through every bad gig over the next 18 months, in which there were many, because I couldn't live up to my opening. It was, uh, it, I had some good jokes, but nothing that was as strong as that for ages. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: you know, you're playing to an audience who usually saw people melting ice and throwing fish around. Well, so, exactly. So, you know, so they <laughs> must have been amazed you could talk. The, the fact... <laughs> <laughs> he's impersonating
1: somebody else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's sort of also interesting, because it's a little bit of the, perso- the Paul Merton persona. Yes, you know, I realised,
1: I thought that the policeman mustn't find what he's saying funny. Yeah. Uh, because he wouldn't and also it's a kind of sort of um, so yeah without really thinking about it I did kind of set a sort of stamp I suppose because it was the most successful thing first very early on that I did probably most successful thing I ever did in stand-up certainly um, and yeah, it was because it was one of those things, again, when you're watching television, when you're growing up and you're, you're trying to work out the theory of what it is, you know. Um, but there are no rules in comedy, because every exception, everything you think of, there is an exception. I mean, generally speaking, I didn't like growing up comedians that laughed at their own stuff, you know. But Billy Connolly doesn't. Billy Connolly is an exception, you know. He's an extraordinary comedian, one of the biggest, most influential comedians of the last, since the war, Um, so you can't say it's wrong because he does it you know Uh, so uh, but I found that if there's a if there's a sort of you say something that's like my favourite line in the whole thing was I saw Constable Parish came towards me disguised as a fortnight's holiday in Benidorm (laughs) if you look puzzled as to why people are laughing or embarrassed or slightly humiliated it just makes it funnier yeah (laughs) <laughs> That's the idea, anyway. No, it's
0: it's, it's a brilliant bit. I, I love, well, I love I love the the books honestly about your teenage years and and your obsession with comedy, which you know I think. Because I think like, a lot of comedy fans do feel like... a. I mean, I did as well. You feel isolated because everyone else is into pop music, which you were later, but you, you yes. weren't at the time. Yeah, yeah, And so you listen to comedy records and
1: sort of obsessing over comedians, and it's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, in a well, way, compared to other people. Yeah, it is. It can it be a bit sort of... I mean, magicians, you know, you, yeah. you know you, they, they, they tend to sort of, when they're adolescents, they, they tend to stay in bedrooms practising card tricks over yeah. and over again on their own. And people who are into comedy listen to Hancock, CDs or whatever it would be yeah. these days you know uh, and so but it's just it's, it's incredibly fascinating yeah. Yeah. why does a line there is a line in Round the Horn now you know um, they did the show here didn't they about 10 years ago recreation of the radio series Round the Horn now Kenneth Williams uh, and Q Paddock are playing two camp characters called Julian and Sandy and the guy Kenneth Horn comes round to visit them and this is a joke which on paper there doesn't, it doesn't appear to make sense and it's only the rhythm of the performers, which I'll try and approximate if I can, that gets it across. So Kenneth Horn is in there, and he's, he's, he's inquiring about theatre tickets. And uh, he says, what else have you got? And they say, well, there's your actual... Mo-. They say, no, is it? Um, um, hang on, let me think. I, re- I always remember the punchline, because you always get that right, and then you're OK. But let me just figure <laughs> out the... Um, Yes, that's it. He says, so Kenneth Horne says, um, so he said, anything else you're interested in? He said, um, uh, yes, uh, Mozart. He said, please yourself, we only book the seats. Now, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Mozart, please yourself, we only book the seats. But in the hands of Kenneth Williams, in his voice, the audience roar. Yeah, yeah. Mozart, please yourself, we only book the seats. It, it, uh, <laughs> as i proved, <laughs> it means very little. But that's, that's the exchange and it works. It, so why does that work? It's the persona of Kenneth Williams. It sounds sort of perhaps it sounds rude and it isn't rude it's the name yeah. of a composer but you, you, in a rule book wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense but it, just the rhythm of it the lines of it the whatever you know.
0: well it's very I think that's what's fascinating about comedy because like uh, one line in the you know with one comedian will be incredibly offensive and people will be very upset about it and a different comedian can say exactly the same thing and people will love it it's about how you feel about the person I suppose it's about the persona of the it's, but yes. it's the relationship you've built up with an audience so, so you know, yes. someone like Barry Cryer can say something that's really filthily upsetting but his audience will still love him for it, you know. The half of them won't know what it means. They won't, didn't they? And they'll hear it again in five minutes. Uh, but my favourite, the my favourite uh, one of these was your obsession with Michael Crawford. Yes.
1: <laughs> I just yes. think well, it, it's, it's funny how sort of history sort of remembers people. Now, when the first series of... Um, I don't know how, how many people of my age are out there, but uh, 1975, I think it was, was the first series of this programme, Some Mothers Do Have Them, which this was long before Impressionists got hold of the character and yeah. Mike Yarwood particularly sort of simplified it a bit. But his the extraordinary visual gags the stunts the thing with the, the the mini hanging off the edge of the cliff the roller skating underneath the the lorry the going around on roller skates and, and shooting out the door the coming down the stairs on the wardrobe all these sort of stunts done in front of a live audience were, were exhilarating yeah, yeah. again this is in a sort of world of um i mean the 70s was a very strong uh, year a decade for sitcom incredibly strong uh, Steptoe and Dad's Army and porridge and, and, and whatever, um, but some of to have really stood out as well as being sort of like a bit of a throwback to sort of the visual days of, of Keaton or Chaplin or whatever. But before it kind of got sort of mangled a bit, it was really sort of something. Yeah, yeah it was astonishing. Yeah, and it, so it seems were... difficult to believe that now. Maybe.
0: <laughs> well, I remember it. I did. I used to love it as a kid. It was there was a sort of childishness to that character. Oh yeah, totally. But you 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 read it in a paper that Mike. Uh, Michael Crawford yes. uh, would go for a run every morning.
1: In yeah, around um, Hyde Park. And Hyde Park, as you all know, is a huge park. Uh, so I would, I, one morning I went and sat on a park bench waiting for him to run past me. <laughs> my parents had gone away, I think, on holiday um, without telling me. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, and I was just on my own. And I sort of, he was in this, he was in this uh, huge musical at Drury Lane called Billy which is a magnificent book by Keith Waterhouse, but it's kind of my story, but set in the North. So that he's it seems impossible for him because he's in the north uh, and he, he meets a, a comedian and Billy, you know, Billy Lyre, will he come to London and that's the whole thing of it. So it was kind of, and so I saw him and, it, and Michael Crawford, exhilarating stage performer. I mean, yeah. just really, book by Clement Lafrené, the people who wrote Porridge, Lightly Lads, music by John Barry. So it was a really good, classy, you know, it was incredible, classy production. And I was just hooked on it. I just, I just, if, I, I read somewhere in an interview, I go running to Hyde Park every morning. So I just <laughs> sat on a bench near the Royal Albert Hall and got there about half six in the morning and waited to about, I don't know, probably half eight, nine maybe. No. You know, you thought, well, he's not going to be out running now, is he? <laughs> and then he you just know. ran. Oh, well, that's somebody running towards me. He's got a blue... Tri- no, that's no, not him. <laughs> so, it was, but yeah, but then you sort of, even if he had a run past, which yeah. would be unlikely, you yeah, know, of course, <laughs> I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I Certainly, what would I have said that would have said to him, I tell you what, I'm, come and be in the show tonight or it, you know, whatever you imagine it's going to be. But it was just like, it's like contact with somebody that did it. But it, it's, I was a bit too overawed at that yeah. time. Too yeah, overawed. well, that's
0: interesting. I think that that feels to me like a play, there's another instance that's a bit like a play. But that feels like a play where the young Paul Merton you know, is waiting for Michael Crawford. It's not sort of yes. like just a play of the young Paul Merton waiting for Michael Crawford who never shows up. Or mm. maybe just the, as you leave the bench... He runs past. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> and says, ooh, Betty. That would be uh, good. <laughs> but also, there's another play that I think there to be written, which is Stuart, mm. Stuart Lee once went to interview Spike Milligan mm. in his house, mm-hmm. but Spike Milligan was having one of his episodes. Yes. So Stu sat downstairs for two hours waiting for him to... Mm. Calm down and talking to his wife, mm. and then in the end, his wife said, "You're just gonna have to go. He's not gonna be able to interview you." Mm. So that's kind of an, and that almost meeting well, he was, of two generations. I know you met. He Spikes. was on a
1: cycle, so it depends on where yeah. you were. It, it, you know, cause he, he got shell shocked in the war and yeah. stuff, uh, and so he was sort of. Yeah, I mean... But it's sort of
0: that, you know, it's that near meeting of those... It's it's interesting when it's two different generations, Mm. I think, as well. But that, Mm. you know, Stuart Lee and Spike Milligan nearly meeting and then not meeting. Yes. Paul Merton, Michael Crawford, who I presume you've met subsequently. No, never. maybe not?
1: No, never, no. He he
0: goes running in Hyde Park. You should
1: go and wait down there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't wish to be mean, but does he still go running? (laughs) It's, it is sort of funny when you saw, I mean, I was a huge man from Uncle Fan, and I, I met Robert Vaughan. He came down to the comedy store, and it was unbelievable to meet Robert Vaughan. But w- w- you meet sort of, you know, occasionally you meet famous people, and it is always a surprise when they know who you are. I mean, it shouldn't be, perhaps, if you're, you know, but I, I, I don't often go to where are famous people. So Richard Attenborough, I mean, yeah, Richard Attenborough came up to me and said, I mean, it, it didn't, I didn't know what to do with my face in the middle of this, because I thought we were going one way with this sentence, and it ended up somewhere else. So my face had a sort of contortion in the middle, where I had to sort of change expression quickly, and he said, you have made me pee myself with laughter. Mind you, I have got diabetes. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't imagine that in a million years, would you? <laughs> this is what Richard Attenborough would say. To you. I mentioned it on Have I Got News Studio the other week. I don't know if it went out. I didn't see that episode in the edit. But uh, Roger Moore, I met Roger Moore. For me, Roger Moore was the saint, you know, and then later, of course, James Bonner. I was at some sort of film award magazine do. Uh, Roger Moore, I think, perhaps recognised me and so came over to speak to somebody that he recognised. He made a beeline for me. And as he got to me, he just looked at me and said, I can hear fuck all in his ear. <laughs> I mean, if you if you were given a selection of the things he's going to say, you wouldn't you wouldn't select you wouldn't pick that one out, would you? Funny though. But, well, I, but I
0: I had a <laughs> I had a similar thing with you to, of the of the sort of hero worship thing, oh. and, the, and the, because I you, I, you know, I was massively obsessed with the the, the comedy I saw on TV, and and then uh, and I saw you do a very uh, that I was very obsessed with you, did an early stand-up set and I'd never seen anything like it because I'd been watching Python and stuff that was all scripted and then something happened in the audience and you did this big, suddenly veered off and did this. Yes. You, uh, you remember the bit, don't you? Because it's about the, the coach part. I did talk to you about it once. Oh, but um. then, do you remember no, it? I don't. know, Do there well, was. It was. I can't. I can't remember what the subject, but it was. It, I was just blown away because something happened, and you clearly ad libbed this really funny bit, and I couldn't right. believe. And then, you know, then it came to being like 1991, and i had been invited to the Light Entertainment, uh, BBC Light Entertainment Christmas Party because we'd done t- on the hour Ooh. that year. And then you were, you know, A, you were just the Beverly Sisters were there, kind of Ooh. incredible, you know, this... The Beverly was Sisters, yeah. It an incredible array of people from, you know, hundreds of years. For
1: years. you get extremely excited. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know who these people are, obviously it's not exciting, but he said you see Kenneth Walson home talking to Leslie Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just think there's a compl- I don't know. It's because we don't think of them as being real people and suddenly they're talking to each other outside of each other's boundaries. I think it's just
0: very exciting when you've thrust into that word, it's very exciting, but yes. you were there and then but I was much too nervous to talk to you until I was very drunk. Yes. And then I came up to you and sort of stood there grinning and saying whatever yeah. name thing I said. Mm. And then the next year. I, didn't, I, I did the same thing again. <laughs> yeah. So I think for like, uh, like two many, or three uh, years, I would just come up to you. How many years did you do that for? <laughs> quite a long time. You're, you're saying three or four? Uh, yeah, I think it was quite a while. Uh, there, was a, no there, was, there was a gap for was. a couple
1: of years and you came back strong again. <laughs>
0: I'm so, i amazed I've got through this far without having had to have a drink uh, <laughs> to get me to the point I could talk. But you were very you were very nice to me, given that I was this sort of dweeby little comedy
1: fan kind of coming well, up. Well, the, to the thing is, you should be. You know, yeah. it's I can remember sort of like. Uh, This is a. a, a, There's a footballer. Chelsea were had a had a team in the 70s that were sort of a classy team, not as like they are now, but they you know they weren't winning things, but they were a classy team. They had stars like Peter Osgood. There was a swagger at the Kings Road Chelsea. Now there was a a player for them. It doesn't called David Webb, who was like a solid centre half. That's all you need to know about. So, near where I live, Chelsea trained. So, one Monday afternoon, somebody said, Let's go down with autograph book. So we went down with the autograph book, and the big players came out from you know the prac the, you know, from training, and they'd been in the shower and they got into their cars and they drove off, and nobody would sign anything. One guy, the captain, Ron Harris, just signed RH, and you'd afterwards going, Well, if he can sign RH, why can't you sign Ralph? You know, why can't he <laughs> sign Ron Harris? Why can't he do his real name? You know, and David Webb came out, and there was like 10 kids there. He got into his car, he sat in his car. He round down the window and he, he spent five minutes signing everything yeah. you know backs of hands bits of bus ticket and I'm talking about this now 40 years later yeah. it meant it was important yeah. it meant something it, it, it doesn't it takes very little time I've never, I've never said no to an autograph. I mean, I, you know, photographs you sometimes have to say, if it gets out, you say, okay, quickly, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, but generally, no, because it's important and it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference to you to do And also, if you're skilled enough at it, if somebody's a fan of yours and they're gawping a little bit and they don't know what to say, you can put them gently on a conveyor belt and they don't know <laughs> they're on the conveyor belt. <laughs> So you say, oh, hello, what's your name? Oh, oh I say, oh, you, you enjoyed it? Yes, fine. Can I have it? Have you got a phone? Yeah, oh, I have. your friend's got a phone. Hello, how are you doing? You're like, good to see you. Nice to see you. Good, I enjoy the rest of it. And it's, it's it, you know, and it's like 30 seconds, a minute or something. Yeah. And it's absolutely fine. And it's not a problem. It, it's, I just remember the disappointment of somebody that sure. you, it was a really good player. And this, this guy that signed was not the most glamorous player in the team by any stretch, but he was the only one that bothered. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it was very nice. You were very nice. I think you sent me a, a letter once we were on TV. Oh, it was a
1: solicitor's letter. It was, yeah. <laughs> Will you You're stop coming nice. up to me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a big fan of yours. I lived in Somerset. We didn't get horses till 1948. <laughs> <before we> <laughs> Heard it all. I better, ask
0: you, I better ask you a couple of emergency questions, Paul, the to emergency get myself questions out of the sure. embarrassment. Of, I'm going to pick some at random. Um, oh, I won't ask you that. That's too mean.
1: Uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> they're all terrible. <laughs> These are emergency questions, they're not yeah. living up to their the billing. They aren't. I'll ask you this one first, have you ever irked a postman? I yes, am- I have. Yeah. Well, uh- yeah, I was uh, uh, doing sort of like a, you know the delivery, newspaper deliveries during the week, and there was this postman. We used to go down this sort of cul-de-sac, little flats here and there, and occasionally the postman would give me letters. You know, if you're going to number thirty-four, can you post that through the thing? You know, so one time I tried to give him a Daily Express to post at number fifty-four. <laughs> I'd got it wrong. The, t- the relationship between me and the postman. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was 12 years old, he was like double my age, 30 or something like that, you know, pals together in the workplace, walk walk in the same streets, you never know how heavy the next package is going to (laughs) be. I remember one day delivering the Daily Express, Martin Bormann found on every single newspaper, because the the Express were were convinced in 1973 they'd found Martin Borman. Anyway, enough (laughs) of this topical material. (laughs) Martin Bormann, for fact, I, mean, I was talking about Alexi doing Mussolini, I'm now working <laughs> Martin Bormann material.
0: How about this? I've Got never you. asked any of them on this question, I'll never ask anyone again. Mm. Would you rather be able to turn your head like an owl or have a neck that telescopes up to the length of a giraffe's neck? Oh, But that. can go back down again to normal? Oh, uh, no, definitely the second one. Yeah, the, the, the neck.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you can always do that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's a bad question. <laughs> Is this on? You went to a good school, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> what the fuck do they, the they teach?
0: So, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about just a minute. <laughs> yes. Um which I was again, as it was for you. I was when I was a young man and a student, I would listen to that cool. in the in the in the kitchen and dream of being on it, and then you've you've managed to uh, through the scruples you managed to yeah, make exactly. your but way in me
1: Nicholas yeah it is it, yeah, it's wonderful it is, you know, kids generally like just a minute they get it because it's, it's very easy to understand what you what you can't do you know uh, it is difficult because certainly in the nature of public speaking or comedy repetition hesitation deviation are all part of what you do yeah. you know uh, so to suddenly not do that is, is a bit of a challenge I mean Ross Noble I mean Ross is an excellent player of the game but on the last show that I heard last week he, at one point he said week after week after week <laughs> yeah. so it's I always like it it's a golf you know it, it doesn't matter how good you are you'll always hit a bad shot you know yeah. you can't master it and that's and the point is not to master it the point is for the, the you know the interventions and the challenges and all that sort of stuff that's what it's about yeah of course you know
0: I think the first time I did it the first thing I said was uh so yeah was,
1: I've been so worried about repetition
0: that I'd forgotten about hesitation <laughs> it's this juggling the three things together yeah but the, the second you've appeared on the second most Apart from Nicholas, of course, he's appeared, I think, on mm. pretty much every single one.
1: Yes, he has. Um, and he hasn't never missed one. Um, Nicholas Parsons, actually, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's actually one of the few entertainers working today It's mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> Do you think... Last that, supper, he was doing the cabaret. <laughs> if the
0: impossible and unthinkable happened and mm. Nicholas was, for some reason, unable to carry on doing it... Mm. Would, the, would you be prepared to step over to the...
1: Oh, no, I don't chair? think so. No, I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't host it, because then you'd be sort of losing me as a contestant as yeah. well, or panellists, whatever we are. Uh, now I think it was sort of... Uh, I mean, I'd had a meeting with somebody uh, that said, you know, should we, could, could I record something for Nicholas's obituary, you know? Oh uh, so if he suddenly died, they, they've got it there. And I, I said, no, that was 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> the person who asked me left the BBC five years ago.
0: And is dead. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, nobody lives after the BBC. <laughs> you do occasionally see obituaries that
1: are written by someone who's already dead, don't they? Because they do get them out. In it advanced. just it, yeah, and that's it, a bit weird. Isn't it, it does well. It it's yes, because you just yes, it seemed a bit. I think they were just worried, but I mean you know it, it's just they're not so worried now. He's, he's clearly invincible. So. It's incredible. I mean it's just. The first time we did just a minute, he
0: was up in Edinburgh and he had quite a busy day. And he tripped over a speaker. Oh, you were
1: doing that one, yeah. Yeah,
0: and in the the first show, and he like had a really bad fall, Mm -hmm. and yet still got up and then did two episodes just a minute. And was and he's so sharp on it, nearly all the time. No, I mean he he is completely
1: so you know at at the age of ninety four this year. uh, Yes, indeed. Howard Lloyd hanging off the clock (laughs) came out four months before he was born, (laughs) nineteen twenty three. Yes, but of course, Nicholas being Nicholas, the reason why he did fall over the speaker was he was hamming it up by looking at the audience as he came on (laughs) and not seeing where he was going. But, uh, no, he is, uh, you know, the legs are getting a little slow for him now. But, uh, no, everything else is ticking along brilliantly. And it's just, he, he, he's brilliant casting for that. He, he he does. Is, he, yeah. he, he, it's, it's important, you know. The, the, it's important to have a chairman that says, no, you're, you're, you're you, no, 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 you're, you can't get away with that or whatever. You know, yeah. so it's, it feels as if it's about something. But it, what it's really about is just having a laugh in a, in a quiz or a, a parlour game format, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a. Well, you talk about in your book about working with Peter Jones, which obviously mm. you, you worked with him a lot on the show. But you did—he was mm. in a, one of the Hancock ones you mm. did, mm. and he was—he did a Fist of Fun episode. It was sort of so exciting. Again, mm. I think I love comedy when it gets that intergenerational feel to well, it. Well, yes, I mean there is
1: sort of in comedy, you know, uh, people can still be respected at, uh, at an age where in other professions they might not be, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it's uh, Bruce Forsyth. I mean, he's he's. Yeah. he's uh, I mean, it, it, people sort of laughed at him and stuff uh, once, but. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I totally admire what he does i mean there was a there was a moment in strictly come Dark. i mean it's they've it had to change the format a bit because actually what he was doing was going for sort of like real loud out belly laughs live saturday night bbc one there was no sort of laughter machine that could come in so now they've adjusted it a bit so it's not quite so naked so the perform the presenters don't have to come out and do a gag straight away because yeah. you know the nature of doing a gag straight away if it, if it doesn't work it kind of sets a tone and, and so it's it, you've really got to be sure of what you're doing rather than risk It's much better to say hello and welcome rather than. <laughs> you
0: know, and
1: then there's nothing, and then so they, you know, so it's better to be neutral.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, but again, you would, you would give Have your... you ever
1: seen the, 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 the... Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom doing the Sunday night at London Palladium together? The no, two I do think so. It's on, it's on uh, videotape or whatever they call it these days. Um, <laughs> just press a machine there and it comes out your ear or something. But um, there is... The two of them, there was an equity strike. They belonged to the Variety and Artists Federation, so there was... Nobody could do the show apart these two guys said they would do it, live TV. Right. And Norman Wisdom's abilities, I mean, he has a sort of poor reputation, I think, perhaps sometimes, but his physical abilities as a comedian were astonishing. And live TV, he does a thing at one point, you've got a grand piano at this side of the stage over there, polished top. He runs from over here and jumps astride the grand piano on his belly, belly falls off, turns as he's falling, so he lands on his back. Right. and this is live TV he does one other thing if I can uh, can I stand up for a minute with this yes. um, he does this thing where he's had a he's just had a situation with somebody here he walks backwards he keeps walking back he doesn't do what I'm doing he doesn't look down he stops and he completely disappears down a trapdoor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at no point has he looked to see where he's going what he's done, because I look back at it two or three times, is exactly 12 steps, yeah. and he's an ex-army man. Right. So he's rehearsed it to the point where he knows, ex- okay, I'm there, 12 steps back from here, all equal pace, blah, 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 gets me there, and he's gone. And what makes it funny, if he looks to see where he's going, we, we, are, we kind of guess something's going to happen. But yeah, yeah. he stands still and just disappears. Now, <laughs> is there a comic today that could do that? <laughs> Well, no, no, <laughs> a circus clown might be able to do it, yeah. an acrobat might be able to do it, but that kind of and, and this is remember, it's live TV, and if he doesn't get it right, it's it's a it's a size of this table, the trap door, yeah, he yeah. disappears down.
0: Well, there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of craft in those, in those, I and mean, a lot of them had worked on routines and the physicality, TV, there was, but there was, yeah. they, they wouldn't, they'd only. To do that that would be all they did wasn't it One. this routine. was it in those Obviously, days you, would,
1: you, could, you could hone an act and do it you could do the same act you know for 40 years or something It'd be yeah. like a 20 minute act or something so yeah people sort of settled into certain routines so it, not, it wasn't necessarily better but it was different yeah huh. um <laughs> would you rather how have... tall is this giraffe <laughs>
0: Go really? I mean, you'd go. It'd be bad. You'd telescope up and you'd hit your head. Yeah. So maybe you should have chosen an owl after all. No,
1: no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm assuming I can see where I'm going as a giraffe. So well, but you'll be able to see where I'm going.
0: Yeah, yeah you have to think about these things. Um, I remember one, the first Edinburgh I did was 1987, and I remember you. I was very excited about going to see your show, but I wasn't able to see your show that year. No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because you'd uh, you'd had a, and you'd, you've had in your book. There's quite a lot of incidents where you've got ill or broken legs yes, or, or, yeah. or had bad reactions to malaria medicines. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. And had periods of time where you've been put out of action.
1: So you, yes. you broke your leg and you literally broke your leg going it, to Edinburgh in the yeah, day Yeah, we seven. played football up at the, I went up to Edinburgh for the 87 festival, one man show, did the opening night, that was okay, went all right, I, fine, opening, it was all right. Went out, played football the next day, fell over, broke my leg, went into hospital, which was luckily just, just up the road. Came out of hospital after about three or four days, Started getting really sort of sweaty and, and, and falling in and out of consciousness. Ambulance was called. I was round at somebody's flat because the flat that I'd been renting was right at the top of a huge block. So, I, you know, by leg in plaster, I had to be lying on somebody's floor somewhere. Uh, the, the ambulance, for some reason, took three hours to arrive. Uh, they kept phoning for this ambulance. and the, This was back in 87, so it was just a landline. I think we even had, People had mobiles. Maybe a few people had mobiles. Um, the ambulance turned up um, eventually. I got into it. Andy Smart, who was with me, uh, was just talking to me, and he came into to me with the hospital. They thought, well, somebody should go in with me. So I then take to the hospital, and I'm lying on this, uh, on this hospital, the sort of trolley, in a little sort of alcove bit. And Andy is keen to get a bet on, on the 4.30 race at York. <laughs> And so he has a look at me, he looks at the time, and he, he just has a poke in to see when he sees the color I am, and I'm sort of kind of, sort of, kind of bluey sort of color. And he attracts the uh, medical staff and they whisk me off and uh, I wake up the next morning and uh, I've got these things going into my arm, and all drips and things and I've got an oxygen mask on and I'm thinking, this is a funny sort of broken leg, it sort of a, <laughs> seems to develop and what that was was a pulmonary embolism, which is a sort of uh, blood clot uh, which formed uh, and get went into my lung, uh, heart or brain, it's sort of that's it really, um, but lung you've got a sort of chance to survive and so, uh, I, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I did. <laughs> um, and while I was in hospital as well I contracted hepatitis A which um, one of the doctors said well to be honest you've probably called it from the hospital food <laughs> so <laughs> that was 1987 <laughs> but I had the review it said one review on the one show I did it said go and see this man he's hilarious and so people would queue up by the hospital bed I'd show him me x-rays <laughs> allow some of them to take a bit of blood you know
0: but I remember, it being, it was, I remember that being a big thing. and that was. Like, it, it, it was, yeah, yeah it was quite big. 30, yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't realise yeah. how, quite, quite, how close you'd come to paying Oh, yeah, it was.
1: I mean, and sort of, you know, um, medical professionals, you know, doctors, nurses are fantastic, but occasionally when you meet somebody that, that isn't, you go, oh, for fuck's sake, do you really have to be like that? And this guy came up to me uh, the day after I woke up with the oxygen mask, and he said, uh, I suppose you realise you nearly died last night. <laughs> So what can you say to that? I'm <laughs> awfully sorry to inconvenience, you. <laughs> so of course, that, you know, it's, not, it's a funny way to find out. Yeah. But, um, you know, but yeah, so there was, that was that. But that, that was sort of, uh, I got managed to get through it and it was all about determination in the end and, uh, and just sort of getting better and, you know, just keep going, you know.
0: Yeah. But then you had also this. You had this instant where you had to go to the Morsley Hospital after
1: you. Yes, indeed. Yes, I was. We we did a Christmas version of just of uh, whose line is it anyway? I was going on holiday. I I I I went to. Um, kenya and i'd never been to africa and uh, it turned out to be a bit of a mistake because in terms of the medication i was taking i was taking this particular strong version of anti-malarial pills is it larium i think it might be called it's, it's something like that uh, and this was back in 1990 89 90 that new year and um i was i came back i was convinced that i was being spied upon by Uh, Where I lived in the bedsit in Streatham, if I looked across the rooftops, I saw five, six rooftops away, some builders on a rooftop, but they weren't really builders, because I could tell they weren't builders, because they weren't doing much building, they kept looking, kept looking to see where I was, so all this sort of thing was playing in your mind, you know, Uh, taxi drivers were sort of, if the colour purple might suddenly mean something, it it, it was just, uh, I was just about to make this television series with Channel 4, Um, something was wrong, we couldn't figure out what it was, uh, and I ended up being taken to the mortise by my girlfriend at the time who was very worried about me I, I, I became convinced that I knew what was going to be playing on the radio the next song is going to be and I couldn't say it because I didn't know what it was and it would come and I'd say I knew it was going to be that you know <laughs> Uh, and stuff like that. Uh, and I got taken there on a Saturday and this guy's trying to assess me and I'm just sort of, just buzzing. I, it was, it was you know, really extraordinary. Sort of like, you know, started talking about... Oh, my grandfather was an inventor. He invented a soft drink called 3-Up. And then he made that better. And he called it 4-Up. You can see where this is going. And then he got the 6-Up and gave up then. And it's a shame because, you know, all this stuff is coming out of me. Yeah. Um, and it is, and so I, you know, I I went into the Maudsley and uh, the the TV show got postponed for a year, which was fine, it happened another year later, that was fine. But it was, so you're in a situation where you don't know what it is, and it was his anti-malarial pills, and my psychiatrist noticed that my behaviour changed on a Friday because I was on a daily pill and a weekly pill. It was the weekly pill that was the problem. Yeah. And that was, it really, it was a, I always, I always think of it as being that big, but it wasn't. It was tiny, but the effect, it felt like it was that big. It yeah. just really knocked you out. And um, the first time I went in there, they were accidentally giving me the, the uh, weekly pill every day for about three days. Um, so that was, that was some, something. Um, <laughs> in the canteen going into the canteen in the morning for breakfast you have a choice you have sort of like a hard-boiled eggs which have all been peeled because so there's no shell so you know shell can be sharp and hard uh, there's sort of paper cardboard plates and plastic knives and forks and all this sort of stuff and uh one day there was a kid i say kid he was about 19 i suppose i was about 30 then and he'd recognise because who's because the thing was not only was i in this psychiatric hospital but Whose Line Is It Anyway was going out every Friday on Channel 4 and they were watching it in the hospital, you know? Uh, my psychiatrist that I was seeing in the hospital didn't watch it. He didn't know anything about it. It was very new at that point. Uh, so when he said to me, so uh, I said to him, well, uh, some of the patients are looking to be a bit strange. He said, well, why would that be? And I says, well, because they see me on television on a Friday. LAUGHTER Just Fridays, is
0: that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, this, this boy next to me, he's sort of like, you know, we all keep we're queuing up for our sort of brand flakes or our hard boiled egg, whichever, it's, whichever mood we feel our de- digestive system is in. And uh, this boy, he says to me, he taps me on the shoulder, he says, uh, uh, You're Paul Merton, aren't you? Uh, I said, uh, I felt responsibility. So, I said, uh, uh, Yes, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. Um, don't tell anybody I'm here, it's a bit of a secret, but, you know, just, I'll be quiet. He oh, right, I can't tell anybody. And uh, after I wrote the book, uh, I, this was 30 years later, whatever it was, 25 years later, I, I was in Wimbledon, uh, not too far away from the Denmark Hill, and um, this nurse came up to me and she, she said to me that the guy I'd spoken to, his name was John, and it just helped him enormously because he realised that it wasn't his fault that he was there that it could, and this is the thing about mental health, you know, one of the things is that sort of when it happens to people, there is a sense, sometimes a sense of shame. If you can get rid of that shame, it's really helpful. But it really helped him, sure. you know, to sort of see that a man on the television, if he can be ill, then I can be ill, and it's not it's not my fault, it's not a weakness. I mean, all equally, uh, when he said to me, Are you Paul Merton? I could have said, Yes, and I've jumped out the telly. Hey, hey, hey! But it, I'm, I'm not like, denying that there wasn't a temptation. <laughs> no, but you know, in those situations. But it, but it, it was really good just to find out that actually there was a amidst the sort of like difficult times for me, there was beneficial stuff happening yeah. around, you know, as well. Yeah, but, but it
0: also I, when I kind of find it fascinating because I think with comedy anyway, you're as a comedian, you're playing around on that. You're walking a tightrope between sanity and insanity in a way, right? I mean, you, so those jokes... Well, you're, imagination, Those things are saying are suppose, sort of you know. jokes, aren't they? But they're, yeah. but they're... So a joke isn't too far away from, you know, allowing yourself to... You're changing jump reality
1: over. or you're usurping yeah. reality or doing something that sparks a comic reaction. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I think sometimes you're playing... I feel that sometimes, you know, I'm play, I am play I play myself at snooker 80 times in my basement mm. and, you know, I'm in control of it. On a sort, six by three table. a six by three table and I commentate <laughs> I don't know
1: five-year-olds who give you a game. <laughs>
0: right. My daughter's <laughs> nearly old enough now. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but... And I think also is that's the weird thing about being a, a celebrity I and mean, sort of being, you know, a newish celebrity that if you are... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) kind of paranoid state and you think people are watching you and talking about you they are a little bit well, as well. So well, yes, you know,
1: so I, it's, uh, I sort of back in '87, which was when I had all the broken leg stuff. Uh, this the show that you saw, Comedy Wavelength on, yeah. on on Red Channel Four. It was it, it ran for ten weeks, so it got a, I got a chance to be able to build an audience up over the course of you know two and a half months. It's a long time, so it went from three million to four, I think, or something like that. But one of the first times I sort of it affected my behaviour, and I realised afterwards just how silly and, and and laughable the whole thing was. I'd left my sort of one bedroom flat in Streatham and I was walking down Streatham High Road towards W.H. Smith's. I got there and there was two sort of uh, young women who sort of saw me and started giggling and pointing and I felt embarrassed. So I left W.H. Smith's and they followed me out of W.H. Smith's. So I got on the bus to go back home. They got on the bus to get back home. Uh, Not not to get back home with me. (laughs) Um, And so I then got off the bus at a stop earlier then ran down the road so they wouldn't be able to follow where I lived. Got home, sweated, heart palpitation. It had been 35 minutes since I'd left the house to buy a paperback book. I had no book. (laughs) I was sweating in my living room on my own and I'd done it completely to myself. And I realised that actually the funniest thing is, the easiest thing is that people, all you want to do is just wave and that's it. That's yeah. that. People are just, just a moment of contact just to say hello, hello, hello you know, that's it. People are very happy with that, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, thumbs up sort of thing, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I'm very jealous of you because you've got, I, I toured, I was touring on one of my tours and I bumped into you in Brighton. Yes. And yeah. uh, I drive myself around in a little VW Golf mm. and you've got a massive proper tour bus that you travel mm. around with the, the, your...
1: But well, it's tree. a good reason for it. Although it seems extravagant, it's it, good, it, it is extravagant. It I could do it. I mean, if it's five of us, yeah, uh, it'd be so, weird if
0: it's just me on my own in a bus, right? Yeah. Well, and driving it around
1: myself. <laughs> they are they are fantastic. It is like <laughs> yeah. having your own train that goes wherever you wanted to go because <laughs> yeah. it have it has a double. It's a double decker, so it's yeah. sleeping compartments, a kitchen, a, a screen for DVDs, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But it, it it makes sense essentially if you sort of like if you're doing a gig in Leeds or somewhere like that and you leave Leeds at half past ten, you can. Be back in London by half one, half two in the morning, whatever it is, something like that. You haven't paid hotel bills for five people. It's better to get back to London, get back to your own bed and wake up there than it is to wake up in a hotel somewhere else. Sure. You know, So actually, although it looks completely over the top, it, it, it just about breaks, it makes, a, it makes about the same it amount looked of money.
0: It like a lot of fun. Oh, it's
1: fantastic. No, really. And some venues, you know, like the backstage facilities aren't particularly great. I mean, here it's like a palace. I mean, this is nothing. You want to see what it's like back there. Prince Charles comes back here, doesn't he, when he wants to feel somewhere posh. You ought to see it back here, it's wonderful anyway um, <laughs> but uh, yeah so it, it, sometimes some of the venues aren't particularly good and so you could use the buses you know you get a higher um, get a Indian takeaway or something yeah. so you sit on the bus and just say it's all very sociable with a group of you making up improv making up comedy for two hours it helps if you all get on really well of course that's yeah. the key thing really uh, you know, I've been in improv groups where two people haven't got on well and every scene they do is an argument <laughs> happens within moments so you know it might be a joyous occasion the birth of a new baby oh what a beautiful baby oh yes you'd know all about babies wouldn't you since you <laughs> killed those children all those years ago <laughs> what do you mean you know you were the one you know, you know whatever so yes it's sort of you have to have harmony because you can always yeah. fake not fake but you can always play anger but you can't always fake joviality
0: but you know. your, your partner your wife is mm. in the group as well Suki, yeah yeah, yeah Suki. absolutely so, I mean that yeah. must be there must be times when you've had a had a little Tiff,
1: maybe? Little tiff. (laughs) Look at these questions from 1956. (laughs) Have you had a little tiff, Marilyn Monroe? Um, uh, Well, no, it's easier, though, isn't it? Because if we do it, the thing about the impro is uh, there's no set script. So if you say to somebody afterwards who wasn't there, what was it like? Oh, it was this bit when the cowboy came on and then the, you know, and it doesn't sound like anything because it isn't anything. It's ephemeral. It's gone. Uh, if she's at home and I come home at half past one from Leeds, what was a show like? Oh, I was like this, you know. It, that that's kind of potentially the breakup of a relationship because <laughs> yeah. you're not doing the same thing at the same time, and there's no way of explaining. It and I'm not un- social hours. If you're doing it together, then yeah, no, it's you know it's, it's great. You know it, it really works. and um,
0: Would you go back to? I don't think you will. But will you go back to stand up or? Is it is No,
1: the... I mean it, I loved stand up when it was the uh, when in the early days of the cabaret circuit when you'd be like one of five people on the bill, you know. So you one of five acts. So you'd go to the bar afterwards with the other acts have been on or haven't been on and it was very sociable and all that the the thing about i've i've done it before being on stage uh, an hour and just myself and i don't i don't i don't like it i i want i want a comedy butler to come on (laughs) i want somebody to hand me a a piece of paper that's completely blank and say to me something like you know what it means or i don't know but something that's not just the sound of my own voice yeah but other people other people are really skilled at that but for me i'm always looking for entrances and exits
0: yeah, I mean, it's I I, I really understand what you mean, and I can see why you would prefer what you're doing, and you're awesome what you're doing. But it's it also seems a shame when you do that little stand up, and everyone goes, oh wow, that was good and exciting. Yeah, but it's you know, I yeah. mean, I,
1: I always found it really difficult to write stand up as well. I mean, that yeah. policeman on acid routine, as I called it, was was something that took, still took six weeks to get. But yeah. I mean, it used to take forever. I think really in the, during the eighties, I really, I mean, the standard is like a twenty minute act. I think I had a really shit hot 17 and a half minutes. <laughs> I'm not sure. I ever got to 20 because I at the comedy store they have this light on stage which only the act can see which is this red light that flashes on to tell you you know stop you're going too far and all the times I played the comedy store I never saw that red light <laughs> and when it was explained to me it had been there since 1979 I was gobsmacked no I I never had uh, I, I, I never but the, but that was. It didn't come to me naturally. Improvising with other people, uh, it's like ad-libbing at school or something where your mates, somebody yeah. says something, you base something on that, you react off that, somebody else says something. On your own, that's something I'm not so easy... I, I'm not very fluent. No.
0: Well... Um, it's a. Sh- I, you know, I understand what you're saying. It seems like. So you a, want me to do a stand-up tour? I want you to do a stand-up tour. So I can tour on your own. my ass. He <laughs> yeah. said, well, "Like you giraffe drive?
1: stuff." I don't know why he's still working now. <laughs> I to you drive your
0: own bus around. Drive your own uh, bus around. Yeah. And and do you think you is have I got news for you? Going to carry on for? Forever? No, it's going to stop next week. forever. Is it? <laughs> I shouldn't tell
1: you that, really. <laughs> Are you still enjoying it? Because there was a point where you weren't enjoying it, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, that was a long time ago. But it's like one of these things, you, it's got such a huge audience that love the show. And it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to do, sometimes it's easy to do. But it's a, it's a dream gig. So, you know, I, I, if, it's one of those things. You can't afford to start getting sort of like, oh, God, I've got to do this again. Well, there's plenty of people who'd love to do it. So, you know, I only have to sort of, you know, say, you know, and it's, it's important, you know, the morale boosting of comedy is very important. So yeah. the comedians, has to kind of, they have to kind of be up, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right, I'll ask you an emergency question at random. Right. Then we'll we'll have to we'll have to finish because I've got to do another one. It's a shame, yeah. isn't it? Um,
1: Who are you interviewing next?
0: I'm interviewing next week. Uh people are going to wait till next week. Uh, it's Joe. It's Joe Thomas from the uh, In Betweeners. Oh yeah, yeah, he's nice. He ever nice.
1: Ever. I've never met him, but we'll, so I'll see him next week. Uh, Here's a quick David Bowie story that I heard tell you tell once. <laughs> okay. He was doing, a, in the early days of Ziggy Stardust, he's in one of his documentaries, so if, you, if you're a big Barry fan, you might already know this, uh, talking about backstage stuff, and he was, doing, he was talking about the early days of Ziggy Stardust and trying out some sort of tryout gigs, and they might have been somewhere sort of in the north, somewhere, Hull, perhaps, Huddersfield, somewhere like that, maybe. And uh, working men's clubs, it's all a bit primitive backstage, and. David's got all the Ziggy Stardust gear and it's all sort of zipped up and everything and he's, he's just about to go on he says to the guy backstage, me, where can I, is there, is there the gents, is there a sort of, you see that sink at the end of the corridor? That's your loo. He says, I can't go there. And he says, listen son, if it's good enough for Shirley Bassey, it's good enough for you. <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it on a laugh. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, it's Paul Merton. Thank you very much. Thank you. Listening to Richard Herring, Leicester Square Theatre podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Paul Mann. The music's by Pest. Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre, Go Fast the Strike, the British Comedy Guide and iTunes. Uh, thanks to uh, Stefan Caddick, who designed the emergency questions book that I'm holding in my hand. Thank you to Ben Evans for proofreading it. Uh, go to gofasterstrike.com to buy it. Thanks to my producer, Ben Walker. Uh, this is a Fuzz, Go Faster Strike and Sky Potato Production. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed that show, please do support us by going to gofasterstripe.com and buying some stuff. You can also go to richherring.com slash gigs, find out about future Rahalastapa, Rahalastapa lineups. And also the gigs I'm doing, I'm doing um, the Edinburgh Fringe again this year in August 2017. So check out uh, my gig guide, richherring.com slash gigs, and you can see where I'm on at the Pleasance One at 7.30 every night. I'll also be on tour later in the year if you're listening to this in the future. How is it there? Pretty awful, I expect. Bye.